Welcome to The Disaster Project, a podcast about everything disaster. I'm your host, Dr. Larissa Unruh. When people think about disaster response, they often think about individuals who get a call after a disaster has struck, who then jump in helicopters and go to remote places to pull victims out of rubble piles. And while there is so much more to disaster response, today we're going to talk to a man who's one of the original members of a federal group of disaster responders who do just that type of work, Dr. Anthony McIntyre. Dr. McIntyre is a clinical professor of emergency medicine at George Washington University, works for FEMA, which is the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and also serves as the medical director for Fairfax County, Virginia's Urban Search and Rescue, or USAR team. This team is one of only two U.S. USAR teams that gets deployed to international disasters. Over the course of his career, Dr. McIntyre has deployed to disasters, just to name a few, such as the Oklahoma City bombing, the U.S. Embassy bombing in Nairobi, the Haiti earthquake, and many, many other disasters all over the world. In this episode, Dr. McIntyre will take us through the ins and outs of what USAR is, what it does, and what a response is like. If you have ever wondered what a disaster response entails, keep listening, because we are about to learn all about it. So let's start off by talking about your career path. How did you get involved with FEMA and then Urban Search and Rescue? Well, um, good question. I got started in the um, early 90s. I was a resident, though, at GW University, and one of the faculty there, Dr. Joe Barbera, introduced me to the whole concept and field of urban search and rescue and with the, the group or the task force that he was affiliated with at that time, which is uh, Fairfax County's Urban Search and Rescue. The system as we know it today, meaning the USAR Urban Search and Rescue System as we know it today, has really evolved significantly um, over the past several decades. And really in the United States, it's uh, as a, a formalized entity wasn't really established until after the Mexico City earthquake in 1985. And at that time, the U.S. government um, responded by developing its own systems domestically. Um, and that was through FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. And then at the same time, and on a, on a sort of parallel track, um, the United States Agency for International Development also developed a urban search and rescue capability that uh, they could deploy internationally. So there was this uh, dual track um, system that was under development when I got involved, and it was still very nascent at the time. There was there were a lot of efforts going on and documenting procedures and policies and things of that nature for both systems. And some of this was occurring out in Virginia at a nonprofit called NASAR, or the National Association of Search and Rescue. And so I got involved through Dr. Barbera in going out and helping to establish some of those, the, the medical portions of those, and went on to support um, development of policies and procedures, not only for the national system, but for Fairfax more specifically. Just to give you a sense of how things have evolved, the training at that time was pretty rustic, still very good, but uh, I can remember my first training course being in an old decommissioned shooting range where a bunch of boxes had been, you know, overturned and we had scenarios in that that building trying to uh, not only rescue but uh, resuscitate people as they were entrapped in various situations and starting intraosseous lines on chicken bones and things like that. And we'll talk a little bit later about training, but that that was sort of the beginning. 
My first deployment with Urban Search and Rescue was actually a scrubbed mission in the sense that we were deployed to go to the Northridge earthquake in 1994. Um, but anybody who's been in this area long enough knows about our historic ice storms. And uh, we got iced in and eventually the, um, the mission was scrubbed. However, shortly thereafter, uh, was deployed as a medical team manager on the team to a very different incident, uh, the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, the Murrah Building bombing, and um, very different than what we had been preparing for. The, the system was ostensibly designed for earthquakes, and here we were in a single structure that was impacted, but impacted by a different hazard, a bombing. And different in, in many ways, but one of them is that obviously survivability is much lower after a bombing. So it became much more of a recovery mission and um, some of the complications with that. And uh, interestingly, one of the um, entities that was working side by side with us on that mission was the FBI. If you look at some of the old pictures from the Murrah building, you'll see, you know, local firefighters, mutual aid assistance. You'll see federal FEMA urban search and rescue teams. And then you'll see individuals with black helmets running around. And those were the FBI working side by side with us on the rubble pile. And I think fair to say that after that first mission, I got hooked. Let's take a step back to kind of the very beginning. What is urban search and rescue? I hate to repeat a definition with the uh, question, but at its most basic level, it's the search and rescue of individuals who are entrapped as a result of um, structural collapse. And to achieve that, it takes multiple disciplines on a team to affect a rescue. And the teams are mainly fire-based. Um, in the sense that most of the personnel on the teams are come from um, the firefighting backgrounds. There are different components to a team, the different functions, as we call them. Um, rescue is probably the, the most prominent with the most people, and those are the firefighters who have been trained with specialty techniques and tools to breach, shore, and otherwise help assist uh, a rescue in the collapse structure environment. Um, but there are others. There's the search function. And that's within itself is multidisciplinary. There are technicians who can operate special listening devices where you use very sensitive acoustic equipment, place it around a structure and triangulate to where you might be hearing a noise. So if there's an individual who's trapped many layers down in a building, you can use the device to triangulate and hopefully locate where they are. Um, they also have um, highly sophisticated cameras they can use to penetrate portions of a building to get a sense of what kind of void spaces people might be trapped in. Then there's the medical component, which is us and typically in our system made up of physicians and paramedics um, and the occasional physician assistant. And there are others like subject matter experts, if you will, on the team, such as our engineers. The engineers probably save more lives than any of the medical providers, and they're the ones who can size up a structure and tell you whether it's safe to go in or not, and if it isn't safe, what sort of mitigation can be done to make it safe to go into. I would be negligent if I didn't mention the canines, internationally known as sniffer dogs in some cases, but uh, the canines are specially trained uh, to work in this hazardous environment to help us in locating uh, both live and deceased victims usually a little bit different training for each. So to keep things simple for the canine, um, often a handler will have one that specializes in one field versus the other, live versus deceased individuals. 
Urban search and rescue is very different than some of the other search disciplines, if you will, that people may be familiar with. Wildland search is one that comes to mind, and that tends to be a you know a more wilderness-based uh, function in which uh, you know you're covering wide swaths of territory, often looking for one or two individuals or something else of value. And urban search and rescue tends to be, as its name implies, more based in in urban settings, although not always. There is often in our realm interaction with heavy equipment, so cranes and and excavators and things of that nature, so it can get pretty complex. As far as the teams themselves go, we typically, in the federal configuration, deploy with a pretty heavy cache of equipment, and that covers all the functions I listed above, the rescue equipment, uh, support materials for the dogs, and the search personnel. And then as far as the medical component of the team goes, uh, quite an extensive cache we deploy with. For the most part, we can achieve much of what one can achieve in an emergency room, minus the um, diagnostic capabilities. We don't have um, lab test capability or uh, radiology, minus the sonography, and um, we, we don't carry blood with us. You know, one question we've we've often been asked is if a local team accesses a victim or if we access a victim, why don't we just have a local medical provider come and, and help provide medical care? And I think, um, you know, the biggest argument against this is it really is a, a hazardous environment. It's not one in which we can rely on our typical tools for assessment. Even in the chaotic environment of the emergency room, we can still, for the most part, walk 360 degrees around a stretcher. We can roll a patient. We can position a patient. Um, we have adequate lighting. We don't have to worry about things falling on us or hazardous atmospheric conditions or other things. And so for all of these reasons, there are procedures and, and training that are associated with being able to operate medically in, in this type of environment. And probably one of the most important things in this, what many call the USAR medical discipline, is um, not knowing just what to do, but knowing what not to do. And there are certainly situations, clinical situations we get into where immediate reaction in the facility would be to do an intervention, intubate, or provide some other intervention. And our situation, we might delay as long as possible because once you do something like that, very definitive, then you own it. And in that environment, it can be very hard to manage. So you can imagine having somebody whose airway you've now assumed control of that can be a real challenge to continue to maintain that for the patient as you're trying to extricate them. Dislodgement of the tube and provision of uh, oxygen, et cetera, can be a real challenge. So knowing when to do something and when not to is is pretty important. A lot of clinical entities that we see on on a regular basis, the, the dust impaction on the airway, the, the traumatic injuries that, you know, we are very used to seeing in the emergency department, but now we're seeing them in a fashion where they've been existent for days untreated, uh, open wounds, open fractures, eviscerations, et cetera, that have uh, existed for some time. And so stabilization of the patient, especially in this environment, but with these complex entities can be a real challenge. Um, one of the big clinical entities that uh, is always mentioned in the urban search and rescue environment is Crush Syndrome. 
obviously different than, you know, maybe the traditional rhabdomyolysis we might see or even a crush injury that we might see um, in the emergency department that really can have extensive amounts of devitalized tissue, some that is still viable. But uh, once you reperfuse it, once compressive force is released, really have to be prepared for this explosive onset of decompensation, which we've seen in numerous cases and can severely impact the patient in the near term, uh, hyperkalemia, hypoperfusion, acidosis as you're reperfusing this tissue, obviously in a delayed fashion as well with renal failure and ARDS and other complications. So being prepared and trained on the medical side to be able to operate in this environment and at the same time recognize um, some of these issues and be able to treat them um, are all part of urban search and rescue. One follow-up question to that. You had mentioned urban search and rescue being used in bombings and then in earthquakes. Are there other scenarios where you get deployed or is it mostly just those, those two scenarios? Um, I would say here domestically in the United States that the most frequent use of urban search and rescue is actually the hurricane scenario and a very different scenario than earthquakes, clearing of houses, partially flooded areas. Urban search and rescue is also used for tornadoes. It's used for flooding situations and most of the domestic teams have a swift water capability as well. Bombing, certainly, and uh, earthquake. There was one situation, the exact year is escaping me, in which teams were deployed to a, a silo explosion. So I guess another explosion, but a, not a, an intentional one. Teams were uh, deployed to a gas main explosion in Puerto Rico. In one really unique situation, which was more akin to wildland search, was the space shuttle disaster search and rescue teams were sent to assist NASA um, on that recovery mission. So there are a wide variety of um, instances in which the teams have been utilized, and no two incidents are the same. They all have come with their own unique uh, flavor. So how many USAR teams are there in the U.S.? So that's a little bit of a complicated question in a sense, and I'll say up front, I don't know, because it depends on how you slice and dice them. What I can tell you is that as far as officially sponsored by the U.S. government, there are 28. And in that situation, the Federal Emergency Management Agency works with what's called a local sponsoring agency. And that local sponsoring agency supports the development of a team, the maintenance of the team, and then ultimately the deployment of the team for FEMA. And those teams, encompass all those functions that I, I mentioned before. For the international system, USAID contracts with two of those 28, Fairfax being one and California, LA County being the second. And those two teams can deploy internationally for USAID. When you start talking about some of the big incidents that occur here domestically, there are many other federal agencies that play a role in search and rescue. And one that many in your audience might be familiar with, often seen on TV, is the U.S. Coast Guard for many reasons, but partially for their airlift capability. You'll often see them participating in search and rescue, but there are others as well, as the, such as the Department of Interior and the Department of Defense resources are um, frequently utilized as well. So when you say how many teams are there at the federal level, that's kind of hard to answer. But in the pure sense of the word urban century rescue, there are 28 federal teams. With, but that would be negligent of not mentioning the tremendous capability that exists within states and localities. There are numerous teams across the country, and they come with various capacities. 
Some are modeled after and look quite similar to the federal teams, and others are, are smaller with lesser capabilities. But you will very often in big incidents see these teams shared through mutual aid across states or territory lines. Looking even broader afield, you know, the whole evolution of search and rescue has been paralleled in the international arena. There are quite sophisticated capabilities that exist around the world. And um, one of the organizing bodies is something called the International Search and Rescue Advisory Group. And uh, this is a formally chartered through a UN action or a UN charter group that serves to establish minimum standards for international teams so that if one country is accepting assistance, they have sort of the good seal, the good house seal of approval, understanding that this team um, meets certain standards and has undergone a peer review process so that, you know, their capabilities are, are considered uh, up to snuff. That organizing body also has preparedness and, and response roles on the preparedness side. As I said, it helps establish those standards, but it also establishes guidelines for how the teams operate in the field. I currently serve as the chair of the medical working group under NSRAG, and so our group often tries to draft guidance. You know, you can imagine anytime you get 10 medical providers in a room, physician, nurses, paramedics, and how there can be disagreements. Well, if you get 10 international providers in a room, getting international agreement can be interesting. And so a lot of the products are established with this multilateral concept in mind, something that all countries can can sign on to when responding in the urban search and rescue environment. On the response side, INSERAG will, at the request of the affected country, deploy personnel and then work with additional personnel donated from the teams to actually set up a management cell for international teams that are coming in. And that takes a lot of the onus of managing the international assistance off of the impacted country. They can manage their own providers and INSERAG will help integrate that international component. You had mentioned INSERAG. Could you tell me what that is? The International Search and Rescue Advisory Group. Got it. Okay. So you had mentioned all the different types of people that are on an urban search and rescue team. There's firefighters, paramedics, medical, engineers. What is training like um, for USAR with all those different types of people? Well, there are common sets of training that all members go through. And one of the one good example um, of the things that uh, at least our task force does is when you first sign on, um, there is an orientation to just what is this about? And family members are invited too, so they can learn as well. And it gives you a very good sense beginning to end of what it's like to be on a mission, but also some of the the activities that are required to be deployable as well as to maintain that deployability. But then as you move further along in your discipline, um, there are more specialized training courses. And as an example for the medical folks on the team, both in our system, the physicians, PAs, and paramedics, the mainstay of that training is something called the medical specialist course, which uh, Dr. Barbera really was the forerunner of he established the the very first course on this and many of those concepts um, exist still today 30 years later and that course is still considered sort of the threshold you you participate in that course before you can deploy it has evolved over the years it is a a good comprehensive course that really 
focuses on both the strategic as well as the tactical issues one needs to focus on when operating in this environment. So, you know, at the tactical level, it focuses a lot on the skills necessary to affect a successful uh, rescue, victim resuscitation in the rubble pile procedures, things of that nature, and then heavy emphasis on safety for not only the provider, but the rest of the team. The medical providers are often looked at as a secondary safety officer on the team, backs them up. And some unique uh, skill sets um, one would not necessarily think of prospectively. There's a, a component in the training that focuses on how to care for the canines. Nobody is being trained to be a veterinarian, and we often do deploy with those capabilities or at least good access to those capabilities. But initial stabilization of a canine is certainly something that we have been called upon to do, and so being familiar with that is important. Once you sort of get through those steps, there are other steps depending on what team you're with and, and what their training tempo is like. Our team conducts monthly medical training, which is really important for numerous reasons. I mean, not only maintaining proficiency with skills or processes, but also for, for bonding of the team to take a group of disparate providers and plop them into a intense, austere environment and ask them to operate cohesively is really not the way to go. And so having those personalities understand and work with each other, pre-deployment is uh, pretty important and helps with the uh, bonding of the team. Our monthly training can be various topics. It can sometimes be classroom didactic, um, sometimes we use it simply to maintain our, our equipment, and um, sometimes we actually get out into scenarios where we'll have uh, victims in the rubble. There is a facility that Fairfax has with collapsed structures where we can you know, exercise different skills, be it a scenario or just hone in on a specific skill in that environment. Our task force will also typically do two full-scale exercises a year. And those can vary in length, sometimes as long as 72 hours where you're living in the camp environment, um, being deployed out to various scenarios that have been pre-established by the team. And uh, they try and make it as close to real world as possible so that uh, especially newer members get a real sense of not just the actual hands-on work, but just the living environment and some of the constraints that they might have. I remember from my very limited time being a firefighter that there was a lot of testing, like physical testing and a lot of written tests that we ended up taking. Is it the same for USAR teams? Let's break that down a little bit. To onboard in the first place, there every team has their own procedures. And for us, yes, there is some form of testing for the medics to, to onboard and certainly for the firefighters as well. As far as ongoing testing, yes, there are certain certifications you have to keep up, and some are more challenging than others. Some tend to be, it's a little bit more of a check the box. You just have to make sure you maintain that proficiency. Um, but I think what you're also alluding to is physical fitness. And yes, at least for the federal task forces, all personnel, whether they're uniform members or civilians, undergo physical fitness testing or health testing. And that's for multiple reasons, but most importantly, to prospectively identify a physical issue that could become more problematic when you're in the field. 
And so we undergo the regular firefighter physical every year, which includes, you know, audiometry, visual testing, pulmonary function testing, stress testing, and things of that nature. So there are multiple components to maintaining your ability to deploy. What would you say the most important skills are for someone who is hoping to be involved with urban search and rescue? A couple that come to mind. One is resiliency. It takes a particular type of personality to be able to, in the middle of a family function, be told, hey, you might be going somewhere, and to be able to pack your bags and be ready to assemble within a couple of hours um, at a pre-designated location. And there's a a lot of uh, what we call hurry up and wait, where you'll rush to get something done and then you wait for something else to happen. And so not just resiliency, but patience. We tend to think of this as all action and there are lengthy waits for transport, for information to come in, for agreements to be made, for for all kinds of things. So resiliency and patience are, are two important ones. As far as the resiliency goes, you know, really being able to live and practice in an austere environment is important. And as I said before, each incident is different. You might find yourself living in a um, a conference center that's been designated to house search and rescue teams for a very focal incident. Or conversely, you could find yourself in the middle of a desert with really only bottled water to consume and uh, lack of, you know, any other running water. So it can vary and it can uh, be taxing. And so having the physical stamina, as well as not to mention the, um, you know, sleep deprivation and other stressors, physical stressors that occur become very important. So um, I would say those are probably two of the most important. I, I do think that folks in the emergency medicine realm tend to be ideal candidates for this in the sense that they often see a patient develop a plan and something changes and they have to roll with the punches and change the plan. And that, in a, in a certain sense, mirrors what occurs on a broader scale in urban search and rescue. You'll have a particular problem set, you'll begin to develop your plan, and the situation will change dramatically. And suddenly you have to you know, regroup and redevelop a new plan. So resiliency and patience, I think, are two primary characteristic. So you had mentioned resiliency, and I feel like now is a good time to ask this question, but this is a, it seems like a very stressful environment that USAR teams are put into. How do the teams manage like the mental health and emotional tolls that come with working in this kind of pressure? Yeah, that's another good question. And, um, you know, there are different ways that we sh- at least in which we address it and i think the best way to categorize them is through both sort of formal and informal mechanisms and it's the informal mechanisms in the field that tend to lend themselves more towards addressing some of these issues but you know first being able to recognize stressors and then recognize when those stressors are are causing stress on an individual and to also be able to normalize those stress reactions if they are indeed normal stress reactions. Any individual who's placed in some of these situations will have stress on a level that they've probably never experienced before. And so that is a normal behavioral reaction to these situations. And, um, you know, sudden 
sadness over a particular situation is expected. And so allowing people to understand that the fact that they just cried is a normal, that it's a normal reaction goes a long way in helping them to, to deal with that situation. Obviously, there are some stress reactions that are not normal and being able to identify those and intervene are important as well, whether it's providing some other outlet, some quiet place for the individual, some extra attention, things like that are important as well. The social activities in the field become important when you you have uh, you know a mealtime where not fancy, we're eating out of a plastic bag, but you have people grouped around in a sort of a campfire atmosphere that can help promote some of that uh, social cohesion and and help mitigate stressors as well. And then obviously when things reach the, you know, a a pathologic stage where something is not a normal stress reaction, um, having the capabilities to intervene, professional capabilities to intervene are important as well. And those are all things that are identified both in the field and back home. A pretty important activity that we do when we get back to medical providers on our team, we have a, a practice where we take the entire team, we divide them up into groups, and each medical provider will do a one-on-one phone call with each team member in their group roughly about a week after we get back, just to check in with them, see how their reintroduction to the daily job is going, making sure there aren't any you know, abnormal reactions or other stressors that are compounding the stress they had from just deploying. So that's worked very effectively for us as well. How does a deployment work? How do you know when you're about to get sent somewhere? Um, well, it's another good question. Uh, again, it depends on what's occurring. Here domestically, the Federal Emergency Management Agency will wait for a state request for assistance. And uh, sometimes there can be some delays in this. It's typically, you know, the state itself or the territory or the tribe is trying to figure out exactly what has happened and, and what they need. And, you know, we may be sitting in the comfort of our armchair looking at the news saying, well, it's obvious that you know, they need X, but it may not be as obvious on the ground. And so there can be some delay, but quite obviously the media can be an incredibly important tip off that something may be happening. We've had some success in predicting based on initial media reports, whether there will be follow-on requests for assistance or not. When this happens, FEMA will reach out to the program leadership of the sponsoring agencies, the teams that are going to deploy. And if there's time, give them an alert and an initial sort of heads up. You might want to get things ready. Or if it's um, a little bit more of a rapidly unfolding incident, they'll actually be activated. Members have several hours to get in and be ready to deploy from our mobilization site. On the international side, it's also a bilateral agreement, if you will. The country will ask for assistance and the U.S. will agree to send assistance. Then, obviously, a little bit of a longer deployment time in the sense that just getting there typically involves uh, air transport and transporting not only the people, but the equipment can um, take a lot longer than some of the domestic situations in which we can quite literally, you know, jump in vehicles and drive. In the domestic system, FEMA will deploy an overhead team to help integrate the federal teams with the local the state and the local teams 
And uh, that overhead team is called uh, an ISP or an incident support team. It takes its daily direction and objectives from the local authorities and will help filter those down to the federal teams and uh, also helps them integrate with some of the multitude of other activities that are often going on, whether it's, you know, purely medical operations like the National Disaster Medical System teams, the DMATs that will be out there or, you know, sheltering operations or other things that are going on. I um deployed as a medical officer with the uh, IST for about uh, 11 or 12 years. And there is a position on the overhead team that looks at purely the medical issues for all the teams in the field. And uh, this can you know, take on a, a variety of flavors as a, a concrete example, establishing for the teams what to do when they encounter somebody who's deceased. What are the protocols? Do they just document things and then provide that information to the locals, or are they actually involved in the extrication of the deceased? And uh, what are the handoff procedures for that? So it's um, a pretty high-level position. You're not in the rubble providing medical care directly, but helping the teams to operate efficiently in the field. As far as the structure of the USAR teams, do you follow an incident command system type structure? Yes, it's very incident command based. Incident management, ICS, is um, something that comes in different flavors, I guess would be the best way to put it. There are those that practice more of a wildland fire model, which um, can have a, a slightly different bent. But a lot of the procedures and processes are similar, the planning cycle forms used. In USAR, there tend to be some slight modifications. A um, USAR ICS-206, the medical form, will look slightly different than the one that's in use in the wildland fire realm. But the basic tenets are the same. It is a, a management methodology. You have objectives set by leadership with different functions underneath that help achieve those objectives. And then those objectives are revised on some sort of time schedule. And then new activities are conducted to try and achieve those new objectives. So it's uh, incredibly successful when applied appropriately. Sometimes I think people get caught up in the minutia of it and um, that can work against them. But uh, otherwise, yes, they, they do practice that. It's certainly where I learned uh, ICS with the USAR system. Can you walk me through what a typical day is like on a search and rescue mission? Yeah, so that can vary, again, depending on what type of mission it is. And as an example, comparing hurricanes and earthquakes, hurricanes often involve travel over pretty wide areas to search. Structure sometimes involves being able to travel through water. But uh, earthquakes, a little bit different. You're prioritizing structures for search. And then the uh, activity tends to be very focalized on a structure after you prioritize them, intense delayering and breaching operations, shoring operations, uh, using some of those advanced search methodologies to locate people. So you might have a period on an initial deployment where there's this blitz mode where people are very engaged there, there is no such thing as a typical day. You're really pushing the stamina of everybody on the team to get out and affect as much as one can in the first several day period. But the ideal for everyone involved, for their health too, is to fall into a rhythm. 
And again, depending on the incident, that rhythm or operational period in most circumstances is a day and a night operations where half the team will be operational during the day and the other half will be operational at night. And, you know, as an example, if you're on duty during the day, um, you might have a quick amount of time to do equipment check, make sure you have what you need for what the area you're being deployed to. If it's in an earthquake scenario and you don't know of any viable rescues occurring, you tend to travel lighter. If you know there are viable rescues to be made, then a little bit more equipment is brought forward. And same goes true on the medical side. We'll tend to bring some more items with us. You'll go out and conduct those activities and then come back. The activities themselves are not always just on operational issues. Very often for medical, especially, it uh, entails looking after the troops themselves, which is really our primary objective. And so checking in on individuals treating team injuries or illnesses becomes important as well. And then, you know, once your operational period is over, you're back at the base camp, a modified form of decontamination. If you've really been digging in the rubble pile, um, you can imagine how um, uh, gear can get uh, covered in mostly in particulates. And then um, for the medical personnel, we often have medical monitoring is what we call. For others, they may understand it as a, a sick call, if you will. But really what we want to do is interact with each person who is um, under our purview on the team. And sometimes we'll you know, use it as a chance to do a vital sign check on the individual. Those vital signs are less important than having the chance to look eye to eye at an individual and just make sure that they're holding up okay under the duress of um, the activities. And then, of course, you know, when all of this is said and done, documentation becomes important. So, you know, the running list of medications that you administered on a case, filling out the paperwork on that, uh, all the records become just as important in the field as they do in a facility. What would you say some of the biggest challenges are when you're doing urban search and rescue? I, a couple come to mind. As far as looking after the personnel themselves, looking after what are really uh, driven and motivated people who would keep going until they drop, that's probably one of the biggest challenges as far as looking after your own troops and really working with uh, other disciplines on the team, the safety personnel and the team leaders themselves to make sure that some of these hard drivers uh, do take a breather when it's acquired, because I think all of us can get consumed by what's in front of us. It's very hard to get wrap your mind around the magnitude of some of these incidents. And, you know, we can very easily get in a situation where we would just keep going until we drop. So that can be one of the challenges as far as looking after the team. As far as uh, actual practice of medicine, adaptation of things that we do in a facility-based environment and adapting those into the field can be a challenge and sometimes require alternative methods altogether. And I think I've discussed some of them, such as the airway management and others. You know, other adaptations that might be required, we tend to think of barrier protection when dealing with, you know, infectious diseases. And when you have a grossly contaminated space in a rubble pile, with uh, body fluids, 
It's not like you can really wear a Tyvek suit and crawl into that tunnel and affect whatever activity it is you're trying to achieve. The barrier just disintegrates the moment you start crawling. And so alternative methods, whether you can cover up those areas or whether there are other barrier methods that could be used, such as just arm covers and things of that nature. There was one rescue we were involved in in Haiti in which uh, there were quite a few deceased individuals located in proximity to a uh, live victim. And just to access the live victim, you had to pass by all these other individuals and it was a, a very grossly contaminated area. So working with the rescuers on the team, uh, we were able to essentially line that tunnel with some of the plastic that's used by the international agencies for tents. And uh, we lined the tunnel with this material, which was quite durable, and were able to slide over it to uh, get in. So you have definitely mentioned some biohazard type hazards that you run into. Are there other types? Do you ever run into chemical hazards or anything else when you're on these missions? Yes, all of the above. Probably in the collapsed structure environment, the most significant hazard is the structural hazard itself. Whatever caused that structure to collapse or partially collapse or weaken, that hazard may reoccur. If it's an earthquake, you may get aftershock. Or the structure itself could eventually fail and uh, cause further collapse. And in some cases, you know, rather large structures that seem to be standing upright, it wouldn't take much to bring them down. As an example, in Oklahoma City, there was one column, I believe it was F-22, that everybody kept talking about. If a large piece of debris came down and took that column out, um, it would have caused a very significant secondary collapse of the structure while we had you know, all of these personnel, obviously, working on the building. And so a tremendous amount of time and effort was spent on um, shoring up that column and preventing any of those large pieces from falling and taking that column out. So structural hazards, and this is one of the reasons I say the structural engineers probably save more lives than any medical person. Um, they truly are very talented people who can size up a situation and, and help us stabilize the situation so we can do what we need to do. Other hazards though, yes, chemical can be an issue you can imagine. It is, uh, in many instances, technically a confined space. And so buildup of certain chemicals or atmospheric contaminants can be a problem. Interestingly, and at least anecdotally, one of the more common ones is one that we cause, meaning a lot of the rescue equipment is run off of gas-powered generators. And so carbon monoxide can be a hazard. And so, you know, helping to understand which way the wind is blowing or how close that generator is to a site of rescue can be incredibly important. Hypothermia, hyperthermia, both play a significant role. The group that just deployed to Turkey had uh, experience with plenty of hypothermia. So not just for the victims, but for the rescuers themselves. Intense physical activity that's required to conduct one of these rescues can really cause people to have challenges. There are simple things in a collapsed structure that are hazards. Simple, I mean, very intuitive, sharp edges and things of that nature. If there's a particular access point that we're going to be going in and out of on a regular basis as we are working on a particular situation, 
being able to mitigate those, whether it's removing the piece of rebar that's sticking out or covering up the jagged glass that's sitting there exposed. The hazards tend to go on and on. We run into unique hazards in some situations. Certainly wildlife can pose a problem, believe it or not. In hurricanes, if you imagine if there's been the uh, storm surge that comes in, it can uh, displace some of the, the local critters. And so snakes and uh, alligators can sometimes be found in places where they would not normally be. So, you know, certainly these are things that from a management perspective, a safety perspective, a medical perspective, we uh, brief the teams on, make sure they're aware of and um, how to avoid them. Or if in the unfortunate incident, they, they end up encountering something like this, how do we deal with it? How do we plan with it? So the hazards are often unique to the individual incident. And that speaks to the broader topic area of medical intelligence, which we as the medical providers on the team are trying to accumulate as much information as we can, even before we leave. And simple things that are intuitive if we're deploying to an area that has malaria overseas, well, we need malaria prophylaxis. But to finer levels of detail, looking to, you know, what healthcare infrastructure is still up and running, what components are impacted, what hazards can we anticipate, and on and on. And then once you get there, you have to reassess all this information to validate it being true or not. Very often what's presented remotely via the internet or the media or whatever, you get on the ground and you learn the situation is quite different. So it's a constant and ongoing process to assess what some of the hazards might be. So from what I've seen, a lot of these situations are very hectic and many, many different groups end up responding to them. How do you deal with other groups that are doing similar things or maybe even exactly the same thing? Is cooperation easy or is that a challenge sometimes? I, I think there are sort of two perspectives on that. One is, is how is the interaction between other organizations? And then what is the interaction within your own organization? And again, it takes on an incident-specific flavor depending on where you are and what you're doing. In many instances in the U.S., because of ICS and some of the well-understood procedures, understanding who has ultimate lead authority, the locals, that friction tends to, it doesn't exist in many instances. And you have people who understand organizations that understand what their role is and, and who they're taking their marching orders from and what that interaction looks like is already sort of pre-established. And so there's less of the tail sniffing and more of the, you know, hey, let's get to work. Internationally, it can be a little more chaotic in the sense that um, not everybody is coming to the table with the same set of assumptions or capabilities. And there can be, there certainly can be opportunities for misunderstanding. And so that's one of the roles that INSEROC plays, the International Search and Rescue Advisory Group. They've helped, at least in the search and rescue realm, to scope out what those relationships should look like and uh, thus reduce some of that potential friction or conflict that could occur. Within the team itself, I can't remember the last time I've seen true, quote unquote, friction while deployed in the field. In fact, I would say it's quite the converse. It really is a cohesive unit when our team deploys where everybody is looking after 
other members of the team. It's true collaboration in all senses of the word. A good example, operational example, might be the same case I was talking about in Haiti, where we were trying to rescue this one individual and uh, very deeply entombed in a building. Many hours, I can't even tell you, it was close to a full 24 hours of operations just to achieve this one rescue. But the interaction between the different disciplines was absolutely phenomenal. It's almost like if you could imagine a an orchestra or a symphony, different components working together to create this harmonious rescue, if you will. The the individual, because she was so deeply entombed, there would be periods where rescue would need to go in, stabilize the structure, do some digging or breaching, then they would stop. The structural engineer would go in, you know, give them some pointers of what to do, what not to do. And then search would go in with their cameras and look past the victim to see what had trapped her legs. Then medical would go in and we would do, we would have a period of time to do some medical interventions to help resuscitate her and stabilize her. And it was just this constant rotation of personnel throughout uh, that period that really was quite something to see. So, yeah, I think, you know, at least internally in our team, we don't see friction. It's almost, you know, the only thing I can compare it to not having deployed with the military is probably something along the lines of that, where you have a group of young men and women who are in a a really intense um, environment, and then they come back. Very often, they have a hard time relating those experiences to their family and friends back home. But when they get back together with the, the deployed group, the stories start flowing, the jokes start flowing, and so you you really get a sense of cohesion from these teams. So sort of along those same lines, I have actually just learned about disaster tourism, which, as I understand it, is when people either with or without medical or search backgrounds kind of flock to a disaster to try and help, uh, but may not actually be very helpful. Have you encountered that? And then what do you do when someone is very obviously not trained enough to be there? To answer the first question, yes. Encounter it on a regular recurring basis. In situations like Oklahoma City or more recently the Champlain Towers, where you have a very focal area of operations, that tends to be a lot easier. Um, Those can be cordoned off and are at least domestically cordoned off with law enforcement and others. So keeping the quote-unquote disaster tourists out becomes a lot easier. It's really on these wider threat incidents, earthquakes and hurricanes and things of that nature, that you tend to see more of this where the entity will inject themselves, if you will, into different scenarios and having to deal with that can be challenging. There are two points I would make. One is is that um, often you can, I hate to use the term co-opt, but at least get that group or individual to work with you rather than against you if they are given some sort of meaningful role in what's going on. And it may not even be in urban search and rescue. It might be in something else. And so if a group shows up, ultimately, they usually do have good intentions in mind. And so making sure that whatever authority is in place can assign them in a, a meaningful role that um, allows them to conduct activities is important. 
The second thing I would mention is that there are some tourists that actually are exceedingly effective. And again, it's a matter of just making sure that they're given a safe and authorized role to play in those operations. Now, having said all of that, there are clearly some people who are, you know, the moth to the flame and really have no business being anywhere in an austere disaster environment. They not only have dangerous motives sometimes, but uh, also can't look after themselves. And one of the, you know, an old adage for disaster response is the last thing you want to do is show up and impact the community more by asking for, you know, a hotel room and food and water and on and on. So not being self-sufficient and showing up. Um, and then requesting assistance is a definite no-no. Depending on what local authorities have in mind for groups or individuals like that, it can depend. Uh, sometimes, uh, quite literally, groups or individuals are escorted out of the area or at other times uh, given a different place to, to go and operate. But it occurs with some irregularity and for anyone who wants to be involved in any type of disaster operation, making sure that a you're a part of an organization that is officially recognized and accepted into the disaster response is important uh, and b making sure that you are operating in your designated role that you know for us on an urban search and rescue team we are medical providers under a much larger structure we don't run the team we are not leaders of the team and we are certainly not making the strategic as well as the tactical decisions for the team. So understanding your role within that organization is important as well. How has technology changed the way that urban search and rescue is conducted? So that's uh, another good question. It um, applies across the disciplines. You know, just thinking of a couple of examples, unmanned aerial systems or, or drones, if you will, are uh, becoming increasingly utilized. There are certain regulations that uh, affect their use and domestically as well as internationally, there can be challenges in deploying them. But when you think about some of these devastating scenarios, earthquakes with entire cities affected, such as recently in Turkey, having that capability can really facilitate a lot of the assessments that occur. There are other technologies that, you know, as crazy as it is, when Joe Barbera and I started working in this field, uh, cell phones were not a thing. They're a thing now. Despite being in some really austere environments around the world, it's often the cell towers that are the first things to go back up and operational. Landlines tend to take a lot longer to reestablish. And so the cell phone has become exceedingly important, not just in communicating, but in also the, the numerous apps that are available. Cell phones are used, for instance, in tracking uh, some of the search activities as rescuers are covering certain areas in their search efforts. They will document structures or facilities as they're, you know, making their way in a progressive fashion down a street, for example. And, and that tracking of the movement of the team can then be filtered up to management levels who can then have a better assessment of to what sort of ground is being covered, what sort of impacts are being encountered, things of that nature. And ultimately, that information can even roll up to the highest levels of government so they can... Um, have a good sense of what's going on. As far as the uh, the provision of medical care, you know, it seems like 
everything we have has gotten smaller over the years. Uh, we did not have little finger pulse oximeters when I first started out. We have those now. Many of our medics carry those in their bags as a first point of greeting on a patient. They'll wipe the dust off their finger and pop one of those on, and that gives them a very quick and dirty assessment of oxygenation or pulse rate. Monitors, we have uh, very small monitors now that can get into the confined space, and so that can help us if, for instance, we're looking for evidence of hyperkalemia on a, a tracing. Probably the the one device that for the austere environment that has truly been a breakthrough, if you will, is the um, stenography. There are devices now that are portable. There are devices which you can plug into your personal device, your cell phone or your um, flat screen device. And, um, you know, you can get very reasonably good pictures with these to the point where you can actually carry one of these into the rubble pile if needed to help with your assessment. So you under-resuscitating, over-resuscitating an individual who's still entrapped. When you think of the numerous applications we use ultrasonography for in the emergency department, clearly a huge advantage in the field where we don't have traditional radiography. Eye injuries, foreign bodies, traumatic injuries, fast exams, just numerous applications for that particular device. Do they ever use ground-penetrating radar for, like, looking at rubble piles? No. Ground-penetrating radar, the, the problem with, and I'm not a technician in this field, but any change in the interface between materials will cause uh, things to refract back. And so when you think about a lot of the buildings we're looking at, not only are we talking pretty big distance of concrete, but then you'll have an airspace and more concrete than another airspace. And so it's not like you're looking through a homogenous material like dirt or sand. And so, no, we, we typically don't use those. I am aware of numerous technological efforts to look at how to, quote unquote, look inside a building while you're standing outside of it. And some have some limited success, others have not. And I'm not sure we've quite cracked the nut on that. Even our thermal imaging devices that you know your traditional fire department might carry, we're typically talking so many different layers of just you know loosely scattered debris interspersed with concrete and air. It just makes it a real challenge for anything remote to really occur. And so when you look at some of the search methodologies, the listening devices, creating boreholes down and putting cameras in, things of that nature, those still have stood the test of time for the most part. And obviously the canines being able to, well. What advice would you give to someone who's interested in pursuing a career with urban search and rescue? I think there are numerous opportunities to get involved in search and rescue and not just through the federal system. And in many cases, some of those might be more accessible to the individual depending on where they physically reside. The two pieces of advice I would give if there is a group or an organization that you're going to affiliate with is, number one, to understand what the requirements are to participate in that organization and what that organization is actually going to do once in the field. There is a very different flavor, if you will, to deploying as part of a federal team as there might be to deploying as part of a local team. In some instances, local teams that don't typically go outside of their state get a lot more action than the federal system does. So, you know, just because it has the name federal next to it doesn't mean 
that you won't see any action if you're with just a state team. Many state teams are exceedingly busy. So understanding what that team is, how it operates, what it might be called upon to do would be important. But because you live and work in proximity to that team, you'll get to know that team and be able to interact with them on a regular basis during training and preparedness and other things. I think you do a disservice to yourself to suddenly show up and say, hi, I'm the doctor or hi, I'm the medic that's going to deploy with you all and have to learn all the personalities and the procedures on the fly during a response. That does a disservice to you as well as the team, as well as ultimately the patient. So uh, understanding the team, its operational methods, and its potential deployment modalities would be important. But then the second piece of advice is if you do hitch up with an organization, staying engaged with that organization to, you know, all organizations evolve and change. And it's not just attrition of providers or rescuers that come and go, you know, knowing the personalities, but their procedures will change. And as you just mentioned, technology has changed things over the past couple of decades. Understanding the the use and limitations of those technologies in your particular environment can be very important. And so staying engaged with that team on a regular basis would be very important. We we tend to, just as a sidebar note, we tend to think anything that works in the healthcare facility will automatically work out in the austere post-impact environment. And that's clearly not the case. We do carry portable blood chemistry analyzers. And uh, those tend to really be, um, they become essentially non-operational at certain temperatures or humidity. So if you're not regularly interfacing with the team and know what their expectations are as to where they're going to operate, then you're going to may end up making false assumptions as to what you're ultimately going to do or how you're going to operate. Is there a, a particularly memorable search and rescue mission that you were a part of? Well, no two are alike. They're all very different. And, you know, just from our prior discussion about the different types of incidents that search and rescue has been involved in here domestically as well as internationally. Just as an example, one of my more recent deployments was to the Nepal earthquake. And I say recent loosely because that was, what, eight years ago. But um, that was a very different uh, response for me personally in the sense that I originally went over as part of the team because we had a robust position complement, I was sort of uh, seconded over to uh, USAID's administrative overhead team, their DART team, and helped them noodle through some of the challenges they were dealing with uh, at a higher level with some of the medical issues that they were trying to support in Kathmandu. And it took on almost a surreal characteristic in the sense that we were in this post-impact environment, and yet I was almost doing what could be equated to office work in a certain sense, still getting out in the field and evaluating things, but then coming to back and, and helping USAID strategize. Anything can turn on a moment's notice, and of course, we had a, the second earthquake, so went from this one environment suddenly to finding ourselves on the runway at uh, Kathmandu Airport helping. Uh, there was a U.S. Department of Defense contingent there that was setting up a, a really massive triage operation. There were numerous victims being flown into the capital from the surrounding mountains, the foothills, really, to the Himalayan mountains, and for several days helped them run this 
triage operation where we just had numerous victims being flown in and and helping to stabilize them, uh, sort them, and then move them forward. So I only bring that example up to describe the tremendous variety of activities one can get involved in. As far as the more traditional hands-on provision of care in the collapse structure environment, there are numerous ones that come to mind. Um, The response to Taiwan's earthquake in 1999, but probably most notably the the one that there were um, a significant number of patients recovered in this uh, reinforced concrete environment, and that was the Haiti response, the Haiti earthquake in 2010. And in that situation, there are rescue scenarios that we went through that in some of our, you know, most imaginative constructs when setting up skill stations or exercises, we just could not have thought of. One example was a rescue that I participated in, a um, young lady trapped. She had been serving drinks behind a bar when the building came down. And she was trapped in a squatting position with her right hand pinned up on the bar. So her head was actually below her right hand. And the only way in which we could get access to this individual was um, there was no basement to the structure. And so we were literally tunneling through dirt, the base foundation of the building to get to her. There was just too much debris and material on the side to penetrate. And we tunneled underneath and made access to this individual through a small hole. And the very first presenting body part was her left buttock. And, you know, as a medical provider, what is it you could do? How can you assess the individual and what sort of interventions can you provide? And I don't think it takes any stretch of the imagination to understand there's quite a bit you can do. The assessment as well as medications and even some subcutaneous fluid can be administered. So just scenarios that we couldn't have imagined, uh, numerous rescues, you know, going back to the safety issue, very hazardous conditions with numerous uh, aftershocks occurring, all sort of solidify that one as certainly being one of the more intense missions that we've been on. Is there anything else that we should know about urban search and rescue? Yeah, there there are two um, subjects, one short, one a little bit more in-depth that I think would be helpful for most listeners to understand. And one of them is uh, metrics of success for urban search and rescue. And for us at the team level, clearly bringing people, everybody home healthy and, and safe from a mission is an incredibly important metric of success. But when you look at the overall disciplines metrics for success, I think one of the common refrains I hear is, well, you know, how many how many people did you rescue? How many people did you pull out of buildings? And that is certainly a driving force behind how the teams are constructed and organized. But it's also important to keep in mind that a metric of success for the teams is also to prove that there isn't anybody left alive in a building. And so that really emphasizes the search and less the rescue. And maybe to put this in perspective, if you imagine your own hometown with numerous buildings that have collapsed, what is it that you and your family are thinking about? What is it that your political leadership is thinking about? What is it your fire department is thinking about? They want some certainty as to whether anyone is left alive in a structure. And so one of the less discussed but uh, most important activities of search and rescue is to go in and help support the locals in establishing whether anybody is left alive or not. 
And um, sometimes, you know, it's, it's the negative conclusion or the sad conclusion that there aren't people left alive. That really takes some nuance and sophistication to be able to do that in very large incidents. But it uh, is still one of the things that urban search and rescue brings to the table. And when you think about it, that that decision to end response activities and look at it as more of a recovery activity can be exceedingly difficult. It's a decision that is usually made by political leadership. It's not something that a, a USAR team decides, but being able to provide input into that process can be exceedingly important. If one is overextending a rescue period, then you are crowding out some of the important recovery activities that could be occurring. At the same time, you know, when there are chances for individuals to still be found alive, you certainly want to continue those rescue efforts. So as a unsung sort of metric for search and rescue, um, amount of ground covered and ability to provide reassurance about the presence or lack of presence of viable finds is uh, an incredibly important function that may not be appreciated by many, but certainly most political leaders in impacted areas appreciate. I would say that sort of as a, a piggyback to that is a uh, topic that has held great interest for uh, myself and Joe Barbera and others. And that's sort of the the time to survival. How long can individuals actually survive in collapsed structures? And, you know, there's been some published on this. We've published ourselves, but by and large, medical literature is pretty um, poor on this particular topic. And uh, very often you'll research the literature post-incident, um, whether it's an earthquake or whatever, and you'll find a lot of the research is based on hospital interventions that were delivered. And there is not a lot out there on how long people actually survive. And it does become important. It became very personally important to us because very often we would be approached and say, hey, doc, you know, how long do you think somebody can survive in this building? And, you know, really the, the answer is, is it depends. Any sort of universal time constant of people can survive three days, people can survive one day, um, all of those are grossly misstated and um, flawed. Really, it, it depends on many factors. And through some of the research that we've done, we've boiled out you know, different factors that contribute to it. But intuitively, the thing that contributes most to survival is the creation of a void space that permits you know, vital functions to continue. And so that really has to be the, the driving factor for determining whether one is going to switch between rescue and recovery. Um, have all the accessible void spaces in a building been accessed and no viable finds in that area. Um, I mentioned we had published on this. We had had several papers, and one of the first papers we had out there documented in at least a, an earthquake scenario, uh, an extreme case of an individual being entrapped for uh, up to a couple of weeks. And, you know, a very, not a, a common scenario, but uh, an extreme one, but this individual had certain things working in his favor. He was entrapped in a space that permitted him to move around a little bit, so he wasn't pinned. And um, he had access to rainwater that was trickling down through the, the rubble pile. So, you know, we published some of these early findings, and then 
it was in Haiti, actually, that we were asked to get on the phone and interact with some uh, family members of individuals who were trapped in a particular building. And interestingly, the, the building had already been searched, all the void spaces accessed, and the the local responders were talking about stopping rescue activities. And uh, some of the, the family members got on the phone and were trying to explain they thought their loved one could live longer than this time period. I think this was about day seven after the earthquake. You know, my family member was a marathoner and, and you know, has great physical stamina. And one of the family members even started citing this paper written by this guy named Dr. McIntyre, who had documented 14 days. And it was one of these surreal moments where, you know, your publication comes back in a, a very real moment to, you know, sort of jar you. And I think um, luckily it was me on the phone because I was able to explain what the paper was really about. They had just sort of done a cursory review and explained to them that, you know, that wasn't a time constant we were trying to publish. We were trying to publish a spectrum. And the spectrum is really influenced by these numerous factors, the most important driving factor being um, void space, survivable void spaces. And if one is able to account for all of those, even including subgrade void spaces, then, you know, that is a good indication that you've you've done a thorough job as far as searching the structure. So metrics of success for USAR, I think, is a outside entity understanding their real role. And then um, just from a, not just an academic perspective, but from a driving operations perspective, how long someone can survive in a structure and uh, when to make those decisions is not purely a medical decision. It is a, a multidisciplinary decision. And at least in our one of our publications that I did with Dr. Barbera, we tried to outline a decision-making process that involves some of those other disciplines, the, the engineers, the rescuers, and uh, the medical personnel, and that coming together of minds to provide that input to uh, local political leadership so that they can make the most scientifically based decision on what is really a big decision to make. So just following up with that, I know it's urban search and rescue, but does urban search and rescue ever go over into the recovery uh, field or is it strictly recovering live humans? Live humans, yes. Deceased victims, yes. I think when the system first started, it there was a notion that it would only do recovery of um, alive persons, and that was invalidated from the very beginning with Oklahoma City and what was a, a very long and intense recovery mission, accounting for each and every single person in that building. Recovery can be used in different ways. We certainly get involved in recovery of the deceased. That's what we did at the Pentagon on 9-11 and certainly what the teams up in New York were doing on 9-11. Recovery can be used in a different way too, the recovery of the community towards more normal function. In that vein, urban search and rescue teams have been used to help affect that. This tends to happen more commonly in the international arena. Teams will go overseas after a period of a week or two weeks. The political leadership says, okay, it's time to transition to recovery. And teams still have you know, a talented pool of personnel there and equipment and will often get involved in various activities. In one instance, we helped um, shore up a clinic 
in a neighborhood that uh, had been used to provide primary care. Team had the skill and expertise to go shore that up and make it safe so that people could continue to use that facility. On a repeated basis, our engineers have been tapped into to go out and help assess structures that nobody's alive in, nobody's in the building, but they want to continue to use the building. And, you know, some cases, very important buildings, be they municipal centers or hospitals or even heritage sites where this particular site, because it was built 300 years ago, did not stand up very well against the earthquake. It holds such tremendous local cultural importance or religious importance that people still want to use it. Is it safe to go in? And um, our engineers have been used to evaluate those structures as far as stability and whether they can continue to be used. So there are other examples as well, but even though that's not the primary role of urban search and rescue, um, they have been used in that capacity before. Well, this was super informative, and I can't thank you enough for coming on this podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been my pleasure, and um, I wish you all the success with your future interviews. Music track courtesy of Pixabay and composed by Alex Zavesa. I'm your host, Larissa Unruh, and I'll see you next time on The Disaster Project. Have an idea for a topic to discuss or know someone that you think would be great to interview on The Disaster Project? Send us a message about it. Email thedisasterprojectpodcast at gmail.com to let us know your thoughts, ideas, and suggestions. Can't wait to read them.